Welcome back to the film experience. I'm Nathaniel Rogers, and I'm here with my co-host Murtada Alfadl. Let's uh, discuss David Fincher's make about the writing of Citizen Kane, which just started streaming on Netflix a couple of days or two days before we're recording this. Hello, everyone. This is Murtada. I'm excited to talk to Nathaniel and to all of you about Mank. So, Nathaniel, what is Mank about? <laughs> <laughs> It's about the writing of Citizen Kane, but it's about many more things. You know, I I have to admit that I was a little surprised that it was also sort of a political drama, which is not what I was expecting from it. You know, there's the scene about mm, 25 minutes in or so where um, Mank gets, uh, gets sort of a critique from his, uh, I believe it's his talent agent or his manager or something. Um, but they're not there. I was a little unclear on that character. Um, Don Houseman, you mean? Yes, Houseman. Yeah. He's um, another writer on Citizen King. He's more of a like um, Orson Welles lackey. Like if okay. you look at the history of Citizen King, I didn't watch Citizen King, but I read I or reread the Pauline Kael uh, Raising Kane huge article, which is so funny. Uh, but yeah. He is he's another writer on Citizen Kane. Okay, so he, yeah, so he has a scene fairly early in the movie, but long enough into the movie where it's kind of like, what is this movie about? <laughs> and where he's like, it's just so unfocused and is jumping all over time. And he's talking about the script Citizen Kane, but it's also obviously a meta commentary on what Mank has been doing for the first 20 minutes or so. Because it does seem like it takes a while to decide what it's about and and or takes a while for you to catch up with what it's about. Um, but I had watched Citizen Kane again like two days before screening Mank because it had been years and years since I saw it. Um, and even with having just watched Citizen Kane, I felt kind of like I needed um, cliff notes or not cliff notes, but uh, sort of a study guide. You know, something to keep referring, keep referring to as I was watching me. My roommate and I kept looking at each other because we had watched Citizen Kane together two days earlier. And we were kept looking at each other like, oh, my God, what would people who haven't seen the Citizen Kane make of this movie? <laughs> because it just doesn't help you at all. Yeah, I didn't have that sort of reaction to it. I think I just knew it was about the writing of Citizen Kane. So if we set it up, Gary Oldman is Herman Mankiewicz, the writer, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, who won, along with Orson Welles, the one Oscar that Citizen Kane has won. And the story is written by, or the script is written by uh, David Fincher's dad, Jack Fincher, who passed away a while ago. Um, so this is a script that's been in his vaults for years and years. But it is about the credit of Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is this classic. It's Orson Welles. That's who gets the credit. But there's been a lot of conversation over the years, including that very famous Pauline Kale essay about who gets the credit. And so this is the story, basically, it's telling you who had the idea. So the story takes place in two timelines, one when... Mank is writing Citizen Kane and then flashbacks to eight years earlier where he developed this friendship with William Randolph Hearst, played by Charles Dance, and his mistress, Marion Davis, played by Amanda Seyfried. So that's like those two characters are whose Citizen Kane story is based on. So 
in a nutshell, I think that's, that's it. And so, um, but um, it does go back and forth a lot. So, like, and to more than just uh, one year, it goes back, like, there's flashbacks to all different points within the 1930s. Yes. Um, I mean, it's mostly linear, um, as long as you're okay with it jumping around. Um, but it's still, like, I wanted to be taking notes, which is not my normal uh, preferred way to watch movies. I did get, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I want to see it again, for sure. Um, but I thought it was a little uh, unfocused. Yeah, because it also gets not just to the relationship with Marion Davies and Hertz, but also into Manx's days at MGM and Louis mm-hmm. B. Mayer and Irving Holberg yeah. are major uh, characters in this. And so is the California Gubernational campaign for <laughs> Upton Sinclair sometime in the 30s. Which, yeah, that's what really surprised me because I didn't know anything about that story. Um, so. I was, I was like, wait, Upton Sinclair ran for governor? Like, I didn't, I didn't know that part of the history. So, uh. Yeah. All of that to me was compelling. Like, the Marion Davis, William Hurt story, and it's mostly Marion Davis. Charles Dance, I think, doesn't even say a couple of words until he gets like a big scene, literally at the end of the movie. But it's mainly the friendship between Mank and Marion Davis. And then the whole Upton Sinclair subplot. I also love that because it's about how you manipulate an election. So mm-hmm. it seemed timely this year. What I wasn't into was, as usual, dramatizing writing is always <laughs> a failure. You cannot do it. Writing is a solitary thing. It's boring. So in the in that sort of frame, they had to create this character of his secretary, played by Lily Collins, who is totally good in the role. Um, but why do we have to follow this one She's British. She has a husband who is fighting in the war because this is set in 1940, I think, or before the U.S. joined the war. But the mm-hmm. U.K. was already fighting Germany. So her husband is in the war. He gets lost. There's all these things. And we have to care about that character. And we are just here to watch. Tell me the story of how Citizen Kane came back. So <laughs> I was not interested in that at all, despite the very good performance of Lily Collins. And I think... Um, Gary Oldman, who is an actor I don't really care for, so I never really know, is he good or am I just biased against him? Right. So he is actually better in those scenes because he's more like, you know, he's playing drunk, he's playing some <clears throat> genius. He is better where in, the, where in sort of the flashback, I think he's like, he's just overshadowed by Amanda Seyfried in their role, in their scenes together. So he's better in these scenes, but also they were the scenes I didn't care for. Like, I was just like, I literally would want to fast forward through those. I'll be like, especially after it's just repetition, right? It's just repetition. He's writing, he's his, drunk. His secretary. Yeah. yeah, it's the same thing. It goes on and on. He's writing, he's drunk, he can't write. Then he, there's a looming deadline. Orson Welles is on the phone. Why aren't you meeting your deadline? Like, it, it keeps being repeated. Yeah, I had, after watching it, I had the feeling that I wanted to see, um, I've never seen that miniseries. I, uh, I can't remember where it was on, but there's a miniseries. The RK- Last Tycoon? Is that the one? Or no, RKO 281 or something. Yeah. That was HBO, yeah. Okay, so that made me want to see that because there were so many 
there was so much detail. It was such like a dense movie mm-hmm. that I, and I don't often feel this way because I prefer movies to television, but I almost wanted it to be a mini series. Like if you're going to go to Netflix, <laughs> <laughs> um, why not make this, um, and they're going to pour hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it costs into it. Cause it looked very luxe and expensive, the movie. Yeah. Um, maybe just make a whole mini series. Um, just cause there were so many elements where it was giving a lot of information, but I still wanted more information. Like the whole basic thrust of the plot is about, you know, authorship, right? Yeah. And, and yet even the idea of Citizen Kane, there's not even really any, despite all the dense information you're getting, you don't know what conversations Orson Welles and Mank had before the movie begins. Cause they had obviously worked together. We learned that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn that Orson Welles has carte blanche on the movie. He can be about on any subject he wants. Um, and you know, the studio is not going to interfere, but we still don't know, like, did they brainstorm the idea together and make it just writing it? Like we don't, there's so, I, I, I found, that there was a lot of information left out, which surprised me given how dense it, it is about wanting you to know very, very specific de- details about what might have influenced the writing of the movie. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think the theory maybe here is that since Citizen Kane is so based on William Randolph Hearst and that, and Mank is who had the relationship and who knew him, then maybe he gets more of the credit, should get more of the credit for Citizen Kane. Um, I think that's the theory. To me, that was the theory of the movie. Um, although, also like Citizen Kane, you just watched it. So I've seen it many times, but I think what I was missing, and maybe I should have done the same as you did, was we'd watch it first, is I am sure there are a lot of references to the filmmaking of Citizen Kane in mm-hmm. this movie. And so yeah. that would have been fun. Now I want to go maybe watch Citizen Kane again and go I don't know if I want to sit through Mank again, but maybe in a month or two, I could do that. <laughs> well, and then, Citizen, I, I, yeah, I will say Citizen Kane is very easy to to rewatch, very easy to sit through again. Yeah, I'm, I'm not afraid of Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. It's Mank. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, I want to sit through this one again yeah. so soon after I just, even though I liked it, like for the most part, I'm positive on this movie just to. Me too, me too. So just to ask you, since you just watched Citizen Kane, did you notice any sort of filmmaking tributes to Citizen Kane from Fincher. Well, I mean, there's very, uh, like the first very obvious one, um, is, is, uh, dropping, like when he takes the second all and like passes out mm. and the bottle rolls away is the, it's shot like the snow globe rolling away at the beginning of Citizen yeah. Kane. That's the most obvious one. That's like, you can't miss it if you've seen Citizen Kane. Yeah. Um, and you know, just generally there's, there's, I think there's a deep focus shot. I, you know, I, I, the movie was so dense with information that I kind of missed direct lifts mm-hmm. because I was thinking about the actual like characters and the Hollywood history so much that that's why I need to see it again because like the visual aspects of it, I want to delve deeper mm-hmm. into. Yeah. 
I think from a writing perspective, the thing I noticed in those scenes where Mank is at MGM with the other MGM screenwriters, the repartee and the delivery of the lines and the cutting, that reminded me of the newspaper scenes in Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. So that was one reference that I sort of thought of while I was watching this. But it was, but I will say it was the filmmaking style. I was surprised that was less, um, uh, less of a, pastiche or homage of 30s filmmaking than I was expecting because like the cutting and the camera movements and all felt very modern to me um but yeah I get yeah the the that's that is the closest to the newspaper scenes yes Mm -hmm. those uh, conversations I guess maybe the black and white is you know the movie is in black and white so that's like the main homage Mm -hmm. and the marketing has been all about um doing trailers in 40s fashion mm-hmm. and even in this movie at the beginning the the credits are done in the 40s so that's yeah. another homage but these are to your point it's not it's not the meat of the movie these are the adornments around it that are old-fashioned paying homage but maybe to your point the filmmaking is a bit more fincher and not um, yeah orson welles yeah as it should so- be so yeah, so since I just watched Citizen Kane, I have to say that I was the most intriguing part of Mink for sure is his uh Mink's relationship with Marion Davis. Mm-hmm. Um and that was really interesting to watch back to back with Citizen Kane, which is essentially what I did. Uh because then you really the the impact of people asking him, but what did Marion do to deserve this? Like what you're writing into the screenplay? Because first of all, I I should preface this all by saying I thought Amanda Seyfried was incredible. Like I thought it was such a great performance. And but the character of Susan, who is like the the loose <laughs> loose based on uh, Marion Davis, is much more pathetic within Citizen Kane. And even though she, uh, she has the self-awareness mm-hmm. that makes you sympathize with her, the Susan character in Citizen Kane, that she's not actually talented, mm-hmm. um, which you get a little of with, um, with a uh, Manx version of Marion Davis in that she's like, can you really, when she asked me, can you really picture me as Marie Antoinette with her Brooklynese or her Bronx or whichever accent <laughs> that was really yeah, fun, like New Yorker, yeah. you know, uh, accent, you know, that was a fun scene and it, uh, it played into that Marion Davis was more aware of her limitations mm-hmm. than, than uh, William Randolph Hearst was. Yeah. I mean, it is a running joke because everybody keeps asking him after reading this case, you know, why are you so cruel to Marion? You know, you like yeah. her. And he's like, and he keeps saying, that's not Marion. You know, it's not her. It's not her. Um, and the movie is in love with her. I don't know. Um, it's definitely a very positive portrayal of Marion Davis as the yeah. Um And so maybe it's, it's to me, I think it's that like one of the main things that I enjoyed about the movie to the, to the point that you were making is that it's trying to say, well, Marion Davis was just so much not the person, not Susan in Citizen Kane. Yeah, but at the same time, it it makes like it makes that that dramatic point, like why are you so cruel to her, much more effective when you see them back to back. But it also doesn't. 
the the movie's like I found a little fuzzy on his motivations. Like because it, it paints like his entire motivation, you know, about this to be like his his internal battle of like integrity because it's set against the backdrop of people basically selling out their integrity in yeah. terms of this election that's going that's going yeah. on. And so he he's very sort of protective of his work. He's like, no, this is the art I'm gonna make. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to compromise, but at the same point, at the same time, I'm not going to even compromise something that people are seeing as like deliberately cruel to someone you love. Like that part was a little hard. I'm not saying it's hard to understand that people would have complex motivations. I'm saying the with the way the movie presents it, it's hard to understand why he's cruel to her. Mm-hmm. I think one point that I sort of notice is that maybe right as Citizen Kane, like the, in the fallout from the whole Upton Sinclair thing, which mm-hmm. presents Louis B. Mayer and Hertz and everybody, you know, in the most unflattering or as they are, as the cruel, you know, corporate people who want profit at above all and don't care about people. Right. So and his writing of Citizen Kane, that portrait of hers is his revenge on all of them or sort of, you know, um, opening the curtain on how they really are, how these people really are. And in the end, Marion Davis is part of that. She was an MGM star. She, in the end, she was to the end, very loyal to Hearst. So maybe as part of his quote unquote revenge or unveiling of that world, he had to include her, even though he liked her and she was his friend. Like for complicity reasons. For complicity, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I guess I found that part unsatisfying because I wanted more of what within Mink's personality would, uh, maybe I wanted more judgment of Mink. Like, you know, he's, he's basically attacking people for having, um, contradictions mm-hmm. you know these people are you know they're artists and all that and yet they can easily turn their back on things in order to make money <laughs> and you and mean, you mean Marion Davis because I don't think no I just mean everybody because like like the other screenwriter who wants a chance to direct so he makes this propaganda film mm-hmm. and then he feels such guilt about it yeah. you know um so it's sort of about people having these conflicts, but I felt the way the movie portrayed Mank or Gary Oldman portrayed him, I didn't really see that much conflict within him mm-hmm. about his own behavior. Yes. I mean, he was part of MGM, right? He was part of the system too. And he so. was a very difficult, obviously a very difficult person to work with, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of reckoning internally about like who am i as an artist yes other than i'm going to prove to everybody that i won't compromise on this point yeah i think you know the only criticism of bank and i agree with this point and i think like the only criticism that man gets is in his relationship with his wife there's a running right. joke where they call her poor sarah yeah um and she's i mean Tuppence middleton is marvelous i think yeah i love her wife. 
but it's the stock sort of long suffering, supportive wife. Yeah. Um, and so that's the one criticism that maybe he didn't value that relationship or work on it as hard as he should have, because she is presented as somebody who's wonderful and loves him and is obviously supportive. So I get, I take your point, And I think the one criticism on, of Mank is just that Yeah. in the movie. It's um, not, yeah, it would have been nice to criticize him too, or to not criticize, just present more facets on him than just this steadfast, marvelous writer who's a drunk and yet still can write a masterpiece while he's you know, out of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. While he's taking sedatives and, and getting plastered and such. Um, yeah, because I think if they had strengthened that criticism, I think it might have made it might have been able to pull parallels with his treatment of Marion Davis, mm-hmm. who yeah. he obviously was very fond of, just like he was obviously very fond of his wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're very fond of these people, why do you treat them so bad? Yeah. Um. So I would, I guess, I guess I just wanted Mank, since he was the main character, to be a little more complicated. Yeah, I agree with that. But he is, the movie is sort of criticizing the system. I guess that's the main thrust of it. It's like it's about the corrupt system. And even, like, I think one of my most favorite scenes is the one where Louis B. Mayer is walking and talking. And he Mm -hmm. talks about how you sell a memory. Like, movies are the only product where the schmucks who buy don't actually get anything but a memory. (laughs) You still keep the product, which is the most cynical way of looking at (laughs) movies and entertainment, but it's also very true. And to just see him sort of distill that to just the base of it, like I'm just here to make money and then keep my fucking product so I can sell it over and over again. And (laughs) and I just felt like, oh, I've been complicit all my life in this stupid (laughs) business. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That was a good, uh, a great part. I actually, one thing I did really like about me is that despite all the criticisms of the system and of Hearst and, you know, how, you know, just sort of ruthless they were about mm-hmm. a, a, an essentially very conservative system, like, mm-hmm. and camping down or oppressing the little people just to get their way. Um, was that it's actually kind of sympathetic to Hearst at the same time. Like in the, in the final climactic scene um, where Charles dance finally gets something to do really, he's very, it's very sort of measured. The performance is very measured and the scene is very measured where you're thinking that he is in a really awkward spot here and he doesn't lash out at Mank. Mm-hmm. Even though Mank yeah. is attempting to destroy him, which I th- I found very interesting. Yeah. And like they're sort of walking him sort of very politely to the door. You've had a lot to drink. So like I thought it was an interesting portrait of like sort of ruthless people who maybe know they're bad people. Yeah. But I, I don't I, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, the movie does portray both Marion Davis and to a lesser extent Hearst as complex people are as yeah. people who are yeah complicit who are corrupt and all of this but also are human and I think that shows in that scene um the one thing that I when I was thinking about this movie and I was I was watching it because 
you know, people have been talking about Mank for a while. And I've seen a lot of people say it's um, it's a love poem to old Hollywood. It's a homage to old Hollywood. And this movie fucking hates Hollywood and the studios. <laughs> like, every scene, it's just going on about how corrupt they are, how it's awful, and it's, you know, all of things that are true. So it's completely not a love poem. It's like a hate poem. It's like, yes, we love movies, but... A Molotov cocktail thrown in the window of the past. Yeah, yeah. It's like saying, yes, we love movies, but fuck the fucking corporations and the studios. And so from that perspective, I really liked it and enjoyed it. Even though it does canonize Mank as like, to your point you were making earlier, as maybe the only good person. When he was clearly not a good person, that's the thing. (laughs) So like... I also, and this is just me being Nathaniel, but I also really didn't like, like, the Norma Shearer asides because, you know, I'm a huge Norma Shearer fan. And, like, there, she has one line in the movie. Um, and, but it goes by so fast that I, when they said Norma, I was like, wait, what? And the camera had already cut away from her because mm-hmm. I didn't realize she was in the scene. And, and, but, but from my, I should have just rewound right then, but I didn't. Yeah, it's Netflix. But You're not. <laughs> I I was watching, but I was watching with other people. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, then I, but I kept staring at all the actresses in the scene, and I'm like, okay, they didn't even bother to cast someone who looks like Norma. And then, and then later on, when they're talking about Marie Antoinette in the movie, they make it sound like Norma Shearer was bad in that movie, but it's one of her best performances. So it's just. I was kind of annoyed with like the Norma Shearer asides. Hmm. Maybe that's David Fincher's own or his dad's own feelings about Norma Shearer. <laughs> Maybe. I think it's more to me, it read more as a conviction of Irving Solberg is, you know, giving his wife the part, you know, right. when and the movie I think even I haven't seen Mary Mary Antoinette, but I don't think it was successful, right? I mean at least that's the impression I got from that scene where they talked about it. Well, no, that was the other weird thing, because I understood that it was successful. Let's look this up while we're on the, <laughs> we're on the thing, because I could have sworn that it was a success. Um, it it might have, maybe it was a success, in, but not, maybe they didn't respect it within Hollywood. I don't know. Because um, I know that it was expensive, and there's all yeah, these maybe Maybe it didn't, it was in the top ten of box office hits that year, but that doesn't always mean you were financially successful if you were very expensive to make, which it was. Um, so it was like number nine of that year in terms of box office. But maybe they expected it to be like the big behemoth of the year or something. Yeah. But since we're talking about Thalberg and Norma Shear, I really liked Ferdinand Kingsley who played Thalberg. I thought. Oh, I did too. He really stood out to me as one of the, you know, the best performances in the movie. You know, Amanda Seyfried is up top, 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 yeah. top. Um, but between the many supporting men, he was the one who stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's one of the reasons I want to see it again is just to 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 like try to take in the the very large supporting cast a little more. I mean, it doesn't give them as much to do as I was hoping, um, but there's still a lot of stuff going on in those scenes. Yeah. Did and you I know- didn't really like him. Did you know he's Ben Kingsley's son? I did not know that. I did not know that until... (laughs) I didn't know that until earlier today when I looked at his IMDb. 
Yeah. Um, I also I like. Love, I did love that Joseph von Sternberg scene too. <laughs> yes, that was funny. That where they were sort of, I, you know, I've been reading about that scene online and people like acting, but why are they acting like these movies had already been made when they hadn't in 1930 or whenever the scene takes place? But I viewed it more as like they were, they hadn't, that they were just spitballing on the spot, like they hadn't actually planned anything for that meeting. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I always say. Those myths were very famous before Hollywood ever got around to them. So like, I didn't view it as like a what do you call that when movies do something that's totally wrong flubs or there's yeah. a word for that. Um, yeah. Those things never really bother me because I've always, you know, movies are not real life. They have to take dramatic license. Like none of this happened as it's shown. So if you move like a scene that you said maybe happened in 1930, it happened in 1934. Like who cares? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that was, but I know, I know it drives some people crazy. Um, yeah. And if we're well, talking about- Yeah, it drives me crazy a little bit if I know that, you know, because the, the, like I brought up the Norma Shearer thing that bugged me a little bit, but, um, but yeah. It's, it's not Norma Shearer. It's Jack Fincher's idea of Norma Shearer, just like Jack Fincher's idea of Marion Davis, right? So, um, but I also like Arliss Howard who played uh, Louis B. Mayer. He's mm-hmm. really good. Um, we already talked about the scene where he describes the movie business, but he's also good in the scene where he goes and begs the MGM um, uh, people to like take a pay cut, um, which yeah. he gives, gets a big monologue and it it shows him the way he's shot and the way he plays it is just showing him as sort of like a, a monster trying mm-hmm. to like yeah. really grab at people. It's very well done. And okay. yeah, that scene was really good because it, Especially the reactions, like the yes people mm-hmm. and all the people capitulating to, you know, the boss, basically, to try to win favor when basically they were hurting themselves. Yeah. So there was a lot of interesting political ideas in it. I'm just, but let's talk the Oscars. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Because even though it was really interesting and it was about Hollywood, I do wonder if people will find it a little, like, dry because as we know there are a lot of people within Hollywood and within the Academy and I'm not trying to like throw shade but there are a lot of people who just aren't in love with movies or old Hollywood who work in Hollywood and who are part of the Academy um, who just don't take the art of film as seriously as some of us would like (laughs) when they vote Um, so I just wonder if this is going to have enough mass appeal. Cause even if, even though you're talking about a, you know, a prestigious group of people, there's still 10,000 of them. So you need mass appeal. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like I like this movie for the most part, but, um, it's not, I didn't really love it. It's not like, like, like I was saying earlier, like I want to watch, made me want to go watch it and gain again, but I guess yeah. I don't want to watch it again. Right. I don't feel like I need to. And, and there are ideas in it that I responded to, but I do get your point about it being cold. I think I watched it with Philip and after we were done, you know, we both enjoyed it and whatever. And he said something that 
I've been thinking about since he said like, so this movie is just for cinephiles, like beyond yeah. that, who's going to care? And yeah. which is totally to the point you were making, which is like, even within the business, there are people who don't care that much about movies. It's just a way for them to earn a living. We don't care about it. But this is so very like for the fans, for the real cinephiles, for the people who like have thought about Citizen Kane for years and who yeah. like thought about movies and who are like looking for the homage shot and enjoying the black and white and doing all. So yeah. And even like to get upset like me, like that Jessica Cohen, I'm sure she's a fine actress, but she does not look like Norma Shearer. So why <laughs> does she get, why does she get that walk on part? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So uh, it is for people who were, who were very, um, very in inside like movie fandom, like it's yeah. an insider movie. Yeah, so it's it doesn't have broad appeal. Yeah, I agree with that. And like even the even critics have been, I think, admiring of it. I haven't read any reviews, but just like what people share on Twitter have been admiring more than in love with it. Yeah. And so I'm worried people are going to have the reaction. I'm not worried because I don't totally love it either, even though I like it. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if people will have the reaction they had to say um, to a masterpiece like Carol, where they I just kept hearing from people within Hollywood, but it's so cold. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just thought, what what are you not seeing about this masterpiece? You know, with Carol, I don't think Mank is a masterpiece, but I wonder if that kind of reaction where, you know, they respect the art of it, but there's not into it. Yeah. So maybe it's another aviator, you know, they just admire the art of it. It's a director they like, but maybe they don't love, although Scorsese is no Fincher, Fincher, or actually Fincher is no Scorsese. Scorsese is a master. Fincher is more like a little bit lower than that. Um, but it's the same. I thing. love, I love David Fincher. So like, <laughs> I think it's crazy that he doesn't have an Oscar yet. So like, I will be happy if he, you know, gets nominated for this. See, I have a, an interesting point here. Um, I was playing a game with a friend the other day. We we're just like over text about like director filmographies and like, you know, take or leave. Like, can you live with this or can you not live with this or whatever? And so I've always thought that I like. David Fincher but mm -hmm. as we were playing that game which is basically with pit directors against each other you just have to choose one filmography he mm -hmm. kept failing like if <laughs> when I put him against Paul Thomas Anderson I chose Paul Thomas Anderson I put him against Quentin Tarantino I chose Quentin Tarantino I put him against um I can't remember the name the French dispatch what's his name uh, uh Wes Anderson I put him against Wes Anderson. He also failed. Like, these are three contemporaries of his. The, you know, they started at the same time. They're around the same age. They made around the same number of movies. They've had yeah. highs and lows and movies I love and movies. And in all those matches, one to one, he was the one I killed. So, <laughs> I've always thought I liked this him. Not a, this was not a fuck, marry, or kill game. This was just like this director versus this director. Yeah, it was like keep or kill. So, right. and I killed him every time. So it was, this was like a sort of a realization that, wow, I maybe don't admire or like Fincher as much as I thought I did. And really, if you go back, for me, if you go back to his filmography, the one movie that maybe I can't live without is Gone Girl. But like, if, you know, all these 
stuff is subjective. But also yeah. there is a reason maybe why he is. Like, it just illuminated to me that maybe there are other people like me who, like, admire him but don't love him, which has been the reaction to Mac. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might it might do very well with the Academy. I'm not saying it's not going to, but I just wonder if maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's maybe because it's the preordained movie where everybody assumed all along that it was going to be the major contender. Yeah, absolutely. Just because of its subject matter and because of its ambition. Before anybody even saw a scene from it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And also because, you know, David Fincher is sort of somebody who maybe deserves a Best Director Oscar. And he came close with the social network. And that was one of the things where, like, a lot of people who follow the Oscars feel he was robbed. Mm-hmm. Because of Including who myself. <laughs> <laughs> Including myself. That was ridiculous but that he didn't win. But, um Yeah. I agree. Like in that competition with those two directors, he should have easily won, even though, you know, I killed him every time in that game. (laughs) (laughs) But I would not kill him against Tom Hooper. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk the best director category in general. Yeah. Um, There's still some unseen movies as much as everybody thinks we're in a normal year. We aren't. Um, we still have months to go. Um, so, you know, we haven't, nobody's really seen um, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, for example. Yeah. With, um, Shaka King is the director there. Um, what else hasn't been seen? Um News of the world, you've seen that, right? Oh, I've seen that. You've seen that. Yeah. Oh, and United States versus Billy Holiday. So those are like uh, with uh, that's Lee Daniels. Those are two sort of still largely unknown quantities as movies. Mm -hmm. um, That because they're both not coming till February. Um, But as we know, the Oscar deadline extends through the end of February this year. Um, so, you know, they could shake things up, but right now it does, it is looking really good for like Chloe Zhao and Regina King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could have and, two females nominated for the first, first time. Yeah. And I think the win or the top two, let's not talk about wins yet. You know, Oscars are five months away. The top <laughs> two to me throughout, like since the festival bows of movies have been Chloe Zhao and David Fincher. Like, those are people, yeah. you know, who always, like, whoever makes a five list or whoever talks about it. We'll include those both. Are the, yeah, we'll include both. So there's two consistent. Um, and the movies are, I think maybe Nomadland is loved a little bit more mm-hmm. um, than Mank. And, but there's respect for both and admiration. Yeah. And within the director's branch, it's easy to see them loving David Fincher more than the other, other branches might. Yeah. Um, just based on his ambition and skill level and all that stuff. Yeah. And they might love, you know, the fuck the studios message too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, other than the, those three though, Chloe Zhao, David Fincher, Regina King, it does feel fairly open to me other than those three. Um, like I loved news of the world, but as I was watching it, I'm thinking, oh, a lot of people aren't going to like this. Mm -hmm. Because it's very, 
much, much more mellow than I was expecting it to be. It, even though it has action scenes, it's a lot of quiet scenes of, of you know, just Tom Hanks and this girl on the road together. Um, so it's kind of a slow burn. It really worked for me, um, but I think a lot of people will just think, huh, and move on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, the one that I've been thinking about as maybe somebody who might surprise here, you know, we're at the end of the year and the top 10 best lists have started coming out and the movie that surprised me, it was well reviewed. We talked about it. It's really well loved, but I did not expect it to be at the top of so many of the few top 10 lists that have been released so far. I was going to say, wait, what, what, which top 10 lists? Like, like I, you know, you Time, know. IndieWire. Oh, okay. There are several major top 10s who've been released and first cow top toes. So, oh. so Kelly Reichardt seems to be somebody who might compete um, for um, at least the Critics Awards, which then will give her some buzz. Right, right. That would really be something to have three female nominees after uh, we're going to try to double the, I mean, not double, but we're trying to trying to double the amount of women who've been nominated all in one year. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the other movie that I really love and I think the director sh- will definitely be on my ballot is I Carry You With Me, which directed by Heidi Ewing. And that's an amazing directorial accomplishment, I think. Just the mixing of the documentary and the narrative in one movie that tells a specific beautiful story. Like, it's such a director's feat. Um, I agree. Although, for some reason, I have really trouble imagining it happening. Yeah. I agree that it's quite, quite a skillful achievement. But I just have trouble imagining people voting for it in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems to me like it's it's so... Um, specific, which I don't think specificity is a bad thing at all. I think we need more of it, yeah. but I do think it can hurt you in things like the broader thing of like mass appeal and campaigns and things like that. Um, and also the and release, of, the release is kind of um, the release of that movie is kind of I don't know what's happening. Like it was supposed to come out in December. Now they moved it back, but it's still going to be eligible somehow. I don't know. It's a bit vague, which is, which is happening to a lot. Like even Nomadland is only playing at virtual Lincoln cinema here in New York, the Mm -hmm. virtual. So everybody in the U S can watch it, but it's not actually coming out till February and who knows what that will be like. Yeah. um, Yeah. So there's those, those issues. Um, so I, I would like to think, uh, you know, since you mentioned Heidi Ewing, a great example of somebody who was maybe deserving that, but nobody's predicting. Um, I'm sure a few people are predicting Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, mm-hmm. but I also have trouble imagining that happen. I'm currently predicting him, but I view that prediction as wishful thinking. <laughs> because even though I think the movie's great, it seems like it's so warm and sort of modest. And that's one of the great things about it is how small the story it chooses to tell is, Mm -hmm. which I think is what's beautiful about it. But I think with the director's branch that sometimes hurts you. Yeah. To Um, to make something that's like nice and modest. you know. I mean, I think that nomination will live and die by the campaign because Minari is beautiful, but the most, 
beautiful thing about it is the emotions it elicits by mm-hmm. the end. So if it's a smart campaign that can remind people of how they felt when yeah. that movie ended as it washed over them, and that is not something easy to accomplish, then I think you will get nominated. So A24, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> get the campaign going. <laughs> you know, yeah, they really need to, I mean, they have, no, I should, I shouldn't say they really need to get them out of there. They have gotten, a, they have done a good job of getting him out there. There are a lot of appearances and appearances such as they are in this climate. You know, he's mm-hmm. doing a lot of Q and A's like they've, they have been pushing the movie. Um, but it's in this very strange season, it's hard to know, even if you push someone, it's hard to know if people are seeing them yeah. because, you know, you're not, you're not getting crowd reactions. You're not really knowing if people in their, on their laptops are really like paying attention, mm-hmm. you know, it's like without live events and like hand, you know, schmoozing and all that, it's really really difficult to read what, how people are reacting to things. Yeah, that is true. Um, and there are two other directors that, um, you know, Florian Zeller in The Father and George Sewell with Marianne's Black Bottom, whose movies are thought of as these vehicles for these amazing performances from, mm-hmm. you know, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman and Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. So um, actors who are definitely, or, you know, on the top of the list, for mm-hmm. nominations and in many, in many, you know, conversations contending for the win. Mm-hmm. And so those movies are going to be seen. And it's always surprising to me when a mo- movies like that, then the director is not um, thought yeah. of because there is somebody guiding that performance that you love so much. So, and I know that you have them both like in your top 10, but not in the top five. What are your thoughts on those two and can they break? Well, I think it's the same situation as you beautifully described for Lee Isaac Chung. It's like, it's if if every actor in your movie is killing it, then you should maybe look at the director of like this director knows how to direct people. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah, <laughs> because like even great actors aren't great in everything. So like if the whole cast is doing a terrific job and like the general thrust of the movie is this like wow everyone was spectacular you have i think the director deserves some of that praise mm-hmm. not just that all of those performances were amazing but wow that director really pulled that ensemble together <laughs> um so i think they're in kind of the same boat as he is mm-hmm. um because none of them none of them have the sort of cachet to just get nominated because they're important if you will even though jersey wolf is obviously an important artist like he's got a million tonys and all that but it's not he's not important to hollywood mm-hmm. you know yeah. he hasn't made he's only made a couple movies like they haven't been successful so it's like so but at least he has a name to work from he has this he has more of a springboard than the other two do um because he is an important artist yeah. Um, but it's still like with all three of those cases, it's going to depend on the campaign. Yeah. So who do you think, who do you think will be the five? So we already talked about Fincher and Zhao and Regina King. Who are the other two? If you were to say today, who the other two would be, who would you say? Today, it's so difficult. I mean, I have, I, I need to update my predictions, but. As of a month ago, I was saying Paul Greengrass and Lee Isaac Chung. 
as the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think Paul Greencrest could happen even if people are cool on the movie in the same way that Fincher could still win, even if people are cool on Mank. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's definitely ambitious and, you know, he's a director people really admire. Um, but I don't know. Like, it's really hard. I like, I, I really view it as a wildly open race, which I don't know if other people are viewing it that way, but I am beyond yeah. Chloe, David and Regina. What about Aaron Sorkin? He was a flash in the pan for a couple of weeks. There. <laughs> well, as we've discussed, like, I don't think he's, uh, I, I hate being mean about people. Like he's obviously a very talented writer, but like, I just don't, See the directorial skill. Yeah. But it's a movie they're going to watch and maybe vote for several times. No, he could could get nominated. I just think that the director's branch might be a little more reticent about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then, you know, the writer's branch will be like, oh, yeah, that movie has great lines of dialogue and, you know, and plus they love him already. I might advise the director's branch if you are thinking of voting for Aaron Sorkin for Trial of the Chicago 7. Fire up Amazon, watch Steve McQueen's Mangrove, and then you can see how a course. Except for that's not eligible, eligible though. <laughs> not eligible, but it's just, you know, comparison. You yes. can then see how a courtroom drama can be dramatized, visualized, directed, made yes. amazing. And then you'll think, oh, trial shit over seven? Fuck that shit. Well, at least they have nominated for Steve McQueen for Best Director before. So at least they're not completely blind. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I do, uh, I do wonder what's going to happen there. Cause like, uh, maybe you're not crazy to think that Kelly Reichardt's going to rise. Um, I guess I viewed that as like an independent spirit thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, but it, has held on in people's recollections and it is a good movie um and she she does have a history of turning Mm -hmm. out good movies yeah and she's someone you know if she was a man she would be at that sort of admired for years similar like fincher a decade ago who's made a lot of movies that people love and now it's time to be recognized because yeah. <laughs> we look back and we think how many movies of yours we've loved you yeah. are you should be best director right yeah but but maybe all of this is all of this wide open quality maybe it's wide open for shaka king and judas and the black messiah if that's great yeah sure um if something arrives at the last second that people are really enthused about i could see it being like a done deal for that director just because right now it seems fuzzy beyond a few people. Mm-hmm. The one director that, you know, the branch likes and who made a movie this year, but it came early is Spike Lee with The Five Blood. So I don't know where do you where you think he is. I uh, I'm just more maybe because of its Netflix and they have so many contenders. Yeah. And I've just never viewed him as like a serious threat for the top five this year, but I could be wrong. You know, because I just, it came early because it came early because like, it doesn't seem at least to me from reviews and discussions that people are as enthused about it as they were as black Klansman, for example. So, um, I don't know. 
I could be wrong. I would have him like maybe number ten right now. Yeah. So do you think I'm wrong on that? Do you think no, he's made the threat? I'm I asked you because I'm really fuzzy. Like I could see it going either way. I could see him suddenly rising because, you know, people go back and watch the movie and think there is something there to admire and love and nominate. Um <laughs> But also I could see him completely like just the movie not being in the conversation at all. But the fact that Chadwick Boseman is so big in the conversation this year, he's, and so is Delroy Lindo as one of the best actor contenders. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe people will see the movie and then Spike Lee gets in, but you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's why I asked. A lot. I mean, both of those things are are very possible. I think a lot is going to depend on the two last-minute entries, whether they're good or not, and whether the director's branch, and I'm not saying this because this is how I think, but, <laughs> but Hollywood is political, and people do vote for political reasons, um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, and this would be a good reason, unless the director's branch thinks, Wow, this is ama- another amazing year for female directors. Let's just nominate a bunch of them, which would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Gothams did, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, with the Gothams, I was a little side-eyeing it a little because it was so obviously, like, purposeful. You it's know? a choice they made, yeah. Yeah. They, like, it, they, I don't think they considered the male directors. They thought, they, they thought, you know, oh, let's make a point because there were all these amazing movies by women yeah but all the choices were good like it's not like you could look at anyone and say oh why her you know they were all no no i know i'm just saying it was obviously a political statement i'm not saying it's a bad Mm -hmm. statement yeah it was obviously a political statement yeah and i i don't and you know the oscars directing branch they do occasionally make political statements not Mm -hmm. that often sometimes they just go with whatever they're supposed to vote for based on campaigns. Yes. <laughs> and other times they're like, no, fuck this. We love this person, you know. That always surprises me when, you know, some, it's not like every nominee, but sometimes there is like, there is always a few nominees every year where there is nothing about the performance or the direction or the writing or except the campaign. And you're just like, really, you really felt for that? <laughs> like you had to tick that? You know, if you don't have five, vote for four, three. You know, you don't have to do five, ten, or whatever it is. <laughs> you know what movie? And this is this is so mean of me to say, but you know what movie? I would, this whole thing reminds me of mm-hmm. is um, the Imitation Game. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> like Morton Tildum, he just sailed right in. Yeah, for best director were... that year. Yeah, when there was Fincher and Ava DuVernay, there were other people they could have. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, occasionally they just, you know, follow the campaigns. Sometimes they make political statements. It'll be interesting this year when the year feels so diffuse mm-hmm. to see if they really go for, like, a a statement, which, I, which again, I am not saying they shouldn't, because a lineup that had mostly female directors would be amazing. Yeah, especially and because the movies are good. The movies are great. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. 
So um, let's move into another category since we talked earlier about some of the performances that we liked and we mentioned Marley Coward and Ferdinand <laughs> Kingsley, Charles Dance. Do you see any of them making it in Best Supporting Actor? Because I think they're all good, um, but I don't know. I don't think they have enough to contend, especially with other movies that have like 17 supporting man, men contending. Yeah. yeah, I don't, I can't, I literally can't see it with, um, with, uh, if maybe if Charles Dance had had more scenes, mm-hmm. he could be someone because he's been around forever and he's a respected actor, even though Meryl Streep's, Meryl Streep hates him, <laughs> you know, but like it, in general, you, you can't know. just say that and move on. Meryl Streep hates him. She does. She worked with him in plenty, and there's all these stories about how much her and Tracy Ullman hated him. Oh, wow. yeah. this is news to me. Oh, yeah, I'm it was big. big this. At the time. I'm going to Google the shit out of this after. <laughs> yeah, so, like, uh, but he's the type of actor, a character actor who's been around forever and always works and is always good, uh-huh. that if the part was a little bigger, I think it could be easy career achievement campaign. Yes. But, it, but he really only has like two scenes. Yeah. So it would be, I think it would be hard to pull off. I agree. Uh, um, and I, you know, I originally predicted, this was silly of me, but I hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> I originally predicted um, Tom Burke as, as Orson Welles to get mm-hmm. nominated. Yeah. But of course he, as, you know, he has even less to do than Charles Dance. Yeah. So. He's just, a voice on the phone, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, it, yeah, it, it's Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried only who have a shot for that movie. Yeah. And what do you think of Gary Oldman? I'm always, I'm have such a blind spot for him. Like, I never like him, but I think I just, I'm biased against him. So I always like, I'm like, is this right? Like, so. I have the same blinders on as you do about him. I almost never love him in a movie. Um, so I would be fine if they skipped him, but I do think it's an entertaining enough performance that given that they clearly like him, I think he has a very good shot at the top five, even though it's competitive. Yeah. And if the movie's going to like, I see the movie contending in all the other races, right? Like costumes are beautiful, the cinematography, the production design. So and Amanda Seyfried is up there as yeah. somebody who might win, and everybody is just like, she's going to watch this movie, and they'll just take a boat. Yeah. Well, and also because, yeah, and I think it, he he really is entertaining in it. So, yeah, so the people who like him already, which there are a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are not like you and I about him. <laughs> yeah. He has, like, major fans. Um, I think he's probably... I'm not sure he's, I, I wouldn't call it anybody a lock other than Chadwick Boseman and Anthony Hopkins, but um, I think he has a good shot. But Best Actor is super competitive, mm-hmm. which a lot depends on campaigns. Like, you know, Delroy Lindo, obviously he's been talked about all year. Um, Tom Hanks is on a resurgent career path and he's you know terrific again in News of the World. Riz Ahmed, of course, is amazing in Sound of Metal. Mm-hmm. Stephen Young, if Benari is a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. Um, and then, then you have even like longer shots like Ben Affleck, people are still talking about, and he's campaigning for the way back. Yeah. 
And yeah, then we have people we haven't seen yet, like Lakeith Stanfield, who's campaigning as lead for Judas and the Black Messiah. Yep. And I love in, I love him in everything, so I'm hoping he's great in that. Yeah, I love him too. Is there an actor or a, an actor contender in the Billie Holiday movie? No, from my understanding, no. I originally thought that. Um, uh, Travanti Rose. Yeah, I originally thought Travanti from uh, who I moved over into supporting was a lead, but I'm hearing that the only lead is Andrew Day in that one. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, best best actor. It feels very competitive to me. Like it's easy to see somebody really big missing because there are just so many people still in the conversation. Oh, and then you have the guys from uh, uh, Kingsley uh, Ben-Adir. Am I saying his name right? Yeah, Kingsley Ben-Adir. From One Night in Miami. Um, he's campaigning lead. Um, so, yeah, it's very crowded. <laughs> it's very crowded. As usual. Well, it's exciting. You know, I hope, like, you know, maybe Gary Oldman doesn't need another nomination. Maybe somebody we should get give it to like a first time nominee. Let's just put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would love it. I haven't seen the performance yet, so I can't endorse it. Um, but if the performance is great, I would I, I would be so thrilled if it went to Lakeith Stanfield because his his career has I think more than earned him the title of Oscar nominee. Yes, I agree uh, with that. And Stephen Young. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm very worried about that because. For whatever reason, Oscar has trouble understanding Asian actors in terms of their skill levels. Um, so I'm a little worried about that one. And also because it's not a flashy part. Mm -hmm. He's very, very good in it. Um, but it's not a flashy actor's movie, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I loved him in it. And of course, I thought he should have been nominated already for burning. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I agree. So this is Mank and this director. Let us know in the comments what you think of the movie and uh, what you who do you think will be nominated for this director? Yeah, we expect to get a lot of different opinions because it really does seem like anything goes for the last two spots of best director. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening and we will be back soon.